Please open your Bibles with me today. It's our final look at the Summer of Psalms as we look at Psalm 28. It's on page 541 in your pew Bible. Psalm 28. And please rise with me to show respect as we read God's holy word. Psalm 28. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done. Bring back on them what they deserve, because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done. He will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry of mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy. And with my song, I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, the fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people. Bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is a word of the Lord proclaimed in your hearing. May you have the ears to hear it. Please have a seat. Let me ask you, it's a rhetorical question almost, but have you ever felt the sting of injustice? You know what I'm talking about? When somebody's accused you unfairly, somebody's leapt to a conclusion about you, somebody who might believe something that's not true about you at all, the sting of injustice, it's a horrible feeling, especially when it comes with consequences. One person who knew that sting of injustice very well was a man named Robert Lee Stinson. And Stinson, in 1985, was convicted for first-degree murder and assault of a woman. He was sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. And there he stayed for the next 24 years until he was exonerated in 2009 by DNA evidence. I have to imagine for those 24 years that he sat in that jail cell, not a day went by where he didn't feel acutely the sting of injustice. Every day feeling like, I didn't do it. I know I didn't do it, but nobody believes me. Everybody thinks I'm guilty. I'm serving the sentence for a crime somebody else committed. It took 24 years for justice to come to his case. Well, being unfairly judged as guilty by society or by the law is a possibility that all Christians have to face in our lives. Let's not forget that our Lord Jesus Christ faced the sting of injustice in his own life, encountered that almost every day in his earthly ministry. He was unfairly judged by the public, by his accusers, for being evil 
being an alcoholic, being in league with devils, being a blasphemer, being a rebel wanting to overthrow the company. He was convicted to die on a cross on circumstantial evidence that didn't hold up under any sort of scrutiny. He felt that sting of injustice. And likewise, those who follow Jesus are often lumped in with what the world sees as evil. And that that burns us. We will be unfairly accused. We will be called things like haters, intolerant, vile, despicable. So how do we handle this? How do we handle it when we feel that sting of injustice so acutely that we want to fight back? We want to hurt somebody in return. I think we find great solace in the words of Psalm 28 here, which holds up a God who is a God of great justice, who tears down the wicked and upholds the righteous. Now, we don't know the specific situation that went behind Psalm 28. Sometimes we know the story of these psalms. This time we don't. I think we can get a general sense of it, though. We know that the psalmist has encountered some sort of gross injustice or ongoing accusation that's been thrown against him. And this has been going on for quite some time. This isn't something that happened the day before and he got really rankled about it and because Facebook didn't exist, he had to sit down and rant about it somewhere. This is a situation that's been going on for quite some time to the point where he's beaten down. He's at his last gasp. He feels like one more day happens that he has to feel this way. He might as well die. He feels like he's alone. And there's just not much in the way of hope. So what does he do? Well, there's a few options at his disposal. He could try fixing it himself. You ever try that? Try fighting by yourself against gossip? Against somebody you know, accusing you of something you can't prove on your own? Good luck with that. He could maybe wait for a while, see if those people accusing him might lay off or maybe even come around to asking him their forgiveness. But none of that obviously is happening. The situation's getting worse and worse. So what do you do? What do you do if you're trying to get help, but the person you're asking for help doesn't have, isn't either helping you or doesn't have the authority to help you? What do you do? You ask for the manager. Right? You're on the phone with somebody, you're not helping me, you're with a representative, they can't help you, they're being stubborn. You get to that point in the conversation like, ma'am, sir, get me your manager. Get me somebody who can help me. Get me somebody who has that authority, somebody who knows what they're talking about, and not somebody who was hired off the college line a week ago and doesn't know what they're doing. Well, that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here in verse 1. He knows he can't get it done. He knows the world can't get it done. So he calls the world's manager. In verse 1, he says, To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear toward me. He's taking this terrible personal experience that's going on in his life. He says, Lord, take it. Take this call. Take this situation. I'm at my wit's end and you're the only one who can handle it. However, even as he's doing this, he's very concerned that the Lord isn't hearing him. 
God has been silent already all throughout all this injustice that's happened in his life and the prayers that followed. So the psalmist has this moment of fear that God's silence will continue forever. Boy, does that sound familiar. In fact, in verse 2, when he says there, hear my cry, that is a mistranslation. What it should say is, hear my cries, plural, because he has been praying day after day, prayer after prayer about this situation. And he has gotten zero in the way of response. And so he's, hear my cries. Do you ever feel like God hasn't heard or responded to the cries of your heart? Maybe the cries that you pray between sobs. You're going, God, hear me. God, do something about it. And you wait, and there's nothing but silence. It's disheartening. Then you know how this psalmist feels. Well, we know from the Bible, God promises us. He says you can do two things. One, you can always bring your requests to me in prayer, and I will hear them. And we also know in the Bible that sometimes God makes us wait for a response. We don't like it. But why does he do that? Why doesn't God answer us right away every single time? We pray, boom, prayer answered. Well, there's a lot of reasons. He's not doing it to be cruel. But often, God doesn't answer your prayer right away because he's building up your faith. Because he knows every day that goes by, that you continue to pray, your faith is strengthening like a muscle. You are working that out. You are anticipating that day where he will answer your prayer. And when that day happens, your rejoicing will be far more than if it happened on the day you prayed it originally. Let's not forget Jesus' own parable on persisting in prayer from Luke 18. You remember that? He tells that story of the widow... I always imagine her on a little cane and she goes up and every day she's beaten on the door of the judge's house because she has experienced injustice. And she demands that that judge give her justice. But this is a lazy judge. This is a not, a, not a great judge. It actually tells us he's an unjust judge. Nice little oxymoron there. And he goes, go away, woman. I don't want to hear your case. But every day she comes back and she bangs on that door. Give me justice. Go away. Give me justice. What happens in the parable? Finally, one day, it's like it's a game of chicken. Who's going to break first, right? And he breaks. The judge breaks. And he finally flings that door open. And he's like, fine. I'll give you the justice you want. Well, then Jesus brings us to the lesson of the parable because this is about prayer. And he says this. He says, will not God... Bring about justice for his chosen ones. That's you. If you're saved, you're one of his chosen ones. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice. It's God promising you. You will get justice in your life. But we are so impatient in our lives. We demand things right now. We want immediate results. Forget having oatmeal that takes 20 minutes to make. We need instant oatmeal. Kids today will never know the pain and suffering of watching a web page load for two minutes 
on a dial-up modem. They want instantly. They will never know how we ever managed to cook without microwaves. They will never know the agony of waiting until that one time, that specific time during the week where your favorite TV show came on the air. We want instant everything. That's our society. And so, as Christians, we often want instant gratification with prayer. And Jesus comes back to us and says, it doesn't always work that way. In fact, it often doesn't work that way. God wants you to be persistent in prayer. Patience and persistence go hand in hand when it comes to prayer. You need to develop both. That's why patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. You want to learn more about that, go see Mary Owen. She did a VBS on that a couple weeks ago. So when God doesn't answer you right away, and you accuse Him, God, why are you turning a deaf ear to me? Don't you see, if this is a situation you need to get on right away, realize He may have a very good reason for holding it out on you, for building up your faith, for teaching you persistence and patience until that moment where He does give you the justice that He promises. Well, if I ever wrote a book on parenting, I will one day, it's going to be a very weird one, and it will have a chapter called, So Now You're the Judge, Jury, and Executioner of Your Household. You see, every parent has to be ready at a moment's notice to suddenly arbitrate court cases in their household. That a great crime has been committed. Two kids get into a fight. Somebody's thrown a punch. A window has been broken. Food hasn't been eaten on the table. You hear that distant call of, it's not fair! And you have to go in as a parent and judge that situation. And it takes time. It takes time to sift through all the evidence, to interrogate the suspects that are often looking out for their own interests, pointing fingers. It takes time to judge rightly. And because of all of that, there's often a huge temptation as a parent to just immediately say, you know what? You're all on time out. You're all going to your room. You're all getting a spanking. Whatever. Just lump everybody together. And if they protest, you say that same thing you heard from your mom and dad. Well, if you're not guilty now, you probably were for something you got away with last week. So, deal with it. The author of Psalm 28, look at verse 3. He's praying. He's like, God, don't be like that parent. Don't lump me in with these evil hypocrites. Don't drag me away to punishment. I'm asking you for justice, but I want careful justice. I want justice where you do learn, take the time to really go through the evidence and to see who is guilty and who is innocent. And the innocent people, Lord, me, please don't take me away with them. Well, it's here we need to pause and say a quick word about something we call imprecatory psalms. Because in verse 4 and 5, we get a bit of imprecatory psalm language. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where the psalmist asks in very harsh language for God to come down and judge people. And sometimes it's so harsh that you as a Christian carefully put down the Bible and step away from it going, I can't pray this. If I pray this, I'll be sinning. If I pray, no, this isn't loving. Why would you pray for these situations, for God to smite people. Well, it seems very mean. 
Well, we'll what we have to understand is that the heart of the imprecatory psalm isn't somebody coming after somebody else with, with vengeance and meanness and hatred. Rather, it's the psalmist asking God for justice to be applied to an unjust situation. It's a psalmist saying, God, if it was up to me, this is what I would do, but I'm not the judge. You are. So Lord, come into this situation. Bring your justice. Bring your judgment. I'll stand by whatever call you make. Because you are the great judge of all things. The psalmist isn't rubbing his hands. He's not engaging in shot of fraud at going, oh, I can't wait until they're smitten. I can't wait till those bad guys go to hell. Rather, saying, God, this is unjust. Come down and bring your justice. That is the prayer that we should pray. Don't pray that somebody gets smitten. But always have an eye on God's justice. Even as we love our neighbor, even as we pray for our enemies, even as we go out of our way to do things in love for those who hate us, we need to have an eye on God to judge rightly. The wicked people mentioned here in Psalm 28, we might feel, well, it's unfair for them to be judged so harshly, for God to tear down their works right away. But realize they've had a lifetime to obey God, a lifetime to repent and to turn. Instead, they have chosen unending rebellion. That is what they've chosen. And as Matthew 16.27 tells us, the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come and He will repay each person according to what He has done. Romans 2 also tells us that God will render to each one according to their works. You can rest on your sinful works or you can rest on the works of God. Those are the two things you can rest on. One of them will get you off as innocent in the court of heaven. One of them will get you condemned. God cannot let evil win. And so Christians need to be, if we're aligning ourselves with God, we need to be aligning ourselves with His sense of justice and saying, God, I don't want evil to win either. I don't want these bad things to continue happening in this world. You look at the news this past week, you see the bombings that happened in Afghanistan, you go, where is the justice? God, come down and bring your justice to those evil people that perpetrate such things. But we still need to have a heart as Christians. We call and we ask for God to do, handle the justice, but we handle the love. We go out, we reach, we evangelize, we do our part. But at the end of the day, we go, we're going to rest easy. Because God will bring justice to all things. Well, if Psalm 28 starts at the darkest time of day, if it starts at midnight, where all seems lost, all seems hopeless, where there, there's just no hope on the horizon, then by verse 6, we now arrive at dawn. The sun is coming up, and there are shouts of rejoicing. And why is that? Because as it reads, praise be to the Lord. For He has heard my cry of mercy. The Lord, my strength, and my shield, my heart trusts in Him, and He helps me. We're not told whether God has resolved this unjust situation yet. But no matter what, the psalmist has come to a point where he comprehends that God understands and hears His cries for mercy. God heard me. God is working on it. It's going to be okay. 
And so he knows that God hears and God saves and God protects. And he can now rest easy and go beyond resting easy. He can start now praising God. Instead of asking, saying, God, please help me, now he can go, God, you are helping me. Praise you. And if God is now tearing down the works of unrepentant sinners, because those works have no place in God's eternal order, we also see God building up something, God building up his work, his work of redemption, the work that he's been working on for thousands upon thousands of years, culminating hopefully, prayerfully, in the salvation of you, in the salvation of his elect. And we see that this project that God's been working on, the greatest project that humanity will ever witness, will result in this great body of the elect brought to him, glorified in front of him, and brought to their home, their permanent home, of peace and joy in his presence forever. I adore this final verse here, verse 9, where the psalmist, he basically prays for all the people. He's gone beyond praying for himself, and now he's issuing a prayer for the whole country. And he says this, he says, Lord, save your people. Bless your inheritance. Have you ever thought about that? You are God's inheritance. You are what God yearns to inherit as an, as an elect person. And then he says, Lord, be their shepherd and carry them forever. Once again, over and over again in the Psalms, we hear, we are taught the assurance of our eternal salvation. That we cannot lose it. We are carried forever. Not for a thousand years, not for a hundred years. Forever. It's what we Calvinists call the perseverance of the saints. God will see his good work all the way through to the end. And since that end is forever, he'll keep on working on that forever. And I love this parting image that the psalmist puts in your mind of God as a shepherd. As we, of course, know in Hebrews 13, 20 and other places in Scripture, they calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. That's one of the ways that Jesus relates to you, a personal relationship with you, is he is the great shepherd and you are, ah, you are his sheep. He loves you. He adores you just as a shepherd does a sheep, as a shepherd tenderly caring for each one of his flock. This past week, a number of us went over to Sheridan Parkside to help them put on a carnival. And I asked, well, what can I do to help? How can I take my many years of education and ministry experience and bring it to these people? And they said, go help with the petting zoo. <laughs> okay. So I go over there. I said, what can I do to help? And they said, well, can you carry a goat? And I said, yes, I have a master's degree in carrying goats. Let me have a goat. And so I, I picked up a goat, and I'm carrying a goat across the field, thinking about, one, how strange this is, because you don't often go carrying goats, and also have, thinking, wow, I've been thinking all this week on Psalm 28, and meditating on this last verse of how a shepherd carries their sheep, and God literally put a goat in my arms and said, Here, this is what it's like. And I felt that goat, it wasn't fighting me, it was just very content. I kept whispering to it, please don't eat my sleeve. Please don't eat my sleeve. But that is this image that God is giving us in this last verse of Psalm 28. Of a shepherd where Jesus says, don't just follow me. He says, let me 
pick you up. Let me carry you. Let me take your burden off those little tiny hooves of yours. Let me carry you the rest of the way. Can you cast your mind all the way back to when you were a child and your mother or your father would pick you up? And you wouldn't have to do anything at that point. You just wrap your arms around their neck, put your head on their shoulders, and you would feel the sensation of somebody who loves you carrying you. That's what God will do for you from now forever. He wants to carry you. He loves you. Not Again, not holding you at arm's length. He is holding you as close to where I held a smelly, smelly goat the other day. And you are much more pleasing to Him than that. That is what we will experience in the arms of God. The man of Psalm 28, he may have started in a place where he felt that sting of injustice. He wondered if that answer to that justice was ever even coming. Why it was taking so long. But in the end, all is well. In the end, he is being carried. In the end, he knows he will get justice. And we know that too. We know that even before we get to our answer of prayer, even before God answering our prayer and giving us justice, we can get a head start on praising Him. And that's a weird thing to think about. We can start praising God for His answer to prayer before the answer comes because we have so much faith that He will answer us. That's what Psalm 28 is ultimately teaching us. That we know He'll bring us justice. We know He'll answer our prayer. Now how He answers your prayer is up to Him. It will be a just thing, and we can praise Him for it. And we can start praising Him for that right now, right today. So those burdens that are on your heart, the things that you are crying out for God, He will answer you. But we can start praising Him for the God He is, the God who does hear, the God who does answer, the God who does bring perfectly good justice into your life. Let's do that with the rest of our service today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, carry us. Carry our burdens. Carry our struggles. Carry our relationships. Carry our aspirations and our dreams. Carry our worries about the future. Carry our memories of the past. Carry us, Lord, in your arms. Help us to feel you every day knowing that we don't walk alone, we don't have to do this alone, that you are a good God that hears everything because we are right by your ear as you carry us. Lord, we praise you for that in your name. Amen.